of God's people, I believe in these latter times, that know who they are, they are fearless. They know that they are more than a conqueror. They are truly overcomers. Why? Because they know whose they are. Amen? Man, don't ever forget whose you are. Couple quick, um, couple quick announcements. A couple changes. Um, where's Charlotte? Charlotte, come on up. Don Scott, come up real quick. Hi, I'm with Charlotte, and I'm with the Women's Well. And I need to do this little correction, because if you go to 244, you may end up in the river. You need to go to 224 Chestnut Lane. Okay. Come to my house, not the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't go far into the river. Just a reminder, too. Uh, ministry team is going to be having a meeting over in the north room right after service, 10 minutes or so, for anybody that can make it. And Rebecca Moran is going to be sharing um, some of the things that she's learned about praying for uh, demonically afflicted people. And so question and answer and what she's learned. So anybody that can come, come. It's going to be a great Q&A moment. Uh, and Dawn's going to pray for the kids this morning. Right. I saw that hand. <laughs> Lord, thank you for each young one that's with us, that's here, that's going <clears> to... <throat> Be in, in classrooms and learning your word, hearing your voice. Bless them, God. Bless the parents. Thank you that they have brought yes. the children. This is our next generation, Father. Yes, God. We ask Thank for protection you, for each one, from just the little tiny babies all the way up through teenage years, Lord. You have such great plans for each one of them. Thank you for them. Protect them. And give them that courage to stand and to appropriate everything that you have put in them to be lighthouses for you in this dark age. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Don. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. Great gun. That was awesome last week, wasn't it? <clears throat> what a great brother. He called me yesterday going down the road. I, we, my son and I were driving, and he called just out of the blue, and him and his son were driving, and we just had a great conversation. He was impressed with um, you guys. He was impressed with the heart of you guys, and uh, he really does have a heart to help families begin to create their own identity. If there's one thing that's missing a lot of te in teaching is that area of family identity. We talk a lot about our own personal identity in Christ, but what about your family? And, you know, we had some great conversations because a lot of us came from, from some very broken families. How do we restore that? And he had some great teaching and insight on that. So I'd love to have him back someday and uh, have him share again. But we're going to move on this morning. We have been moving through the book of John, talking about the seven miracles that John...
to, oh, I'm back. I'm going to slide that on there for me. Thanks. Yeah, we never, he's one of these unsung heroes. You know, you don't see a lot, but man, you sure hear a lot, don't you? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, Jason, let's hear it for Jason. Well, we've been talking about the book of John. We've been talking about the seven miracles in the book of John. There are many miracles in God's word. In fact, there's something like 34 or 37 miracles recorded in the Gospels. But John only chose seven. Why did John choose those seven? And that's what we've been doing. We're navigating. I do not do a lot of review. You guys know that. If you want to review, go to the website, look up the sermons. We just don't have a lot of time for review every Sunday. But in a nutshell, why did John use only these seven miracles? Well, we know later in his, in his book, he talks about why. Because these particular miracles somehow, in some way, form or fashion, reveal the glory of God. Amen? We're on miracle number three today. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 5. This is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. The healing at the pool of Bethesda. Fascinating, fascinating story. And we're just going to read through the scripture here in the NIV is what I'm reading from, starting in verse 1. Now, sometimes later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. This particular festival that Jesus was going to was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was also called the Sukkot, which is a Hebrew word for booths or tents. This particular celebration was for, uh, it was a commemorative event by the Jewish people where they would go out and make these makeshift tents or booths, and for the week, they would eat in them, stay in them, some would sleep in them, and it was for the purpose of commemorating their liberation from Egypt by the hand of God. So that's what they were doing. So it says here, now there, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which is in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Imagine, if you will, this giant, big, I don't know if it was square, perfectly square, how it was, but it was a pool. It was a reservoir of water, and it had these colonnades, which typically a colonnade has a pillar on both sides, but they're covered, so it's kind of like a covered porch. A freestanding, so to speak, covered porch. There was five of those. And under these porches, everywhere you look, there was lame. There was the paralyzed. There were people who were in desperate need of healing. Verse 4. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One of those who had been there was an invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years, which incidentally is almost the same amount of time that the children of Israel wandered around in the desert, lost. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him this really, in my mind, a bizarre question. Here's a crippled guy laying there, paralyzed, and he says, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. It was their Sunday. It was their Sabbath day, which to get up and walk wasn't a big deal, but to take up your mat and walk, that was a big deal. It was actually against Mosaic law. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Hey, the guy who healed me said to do this. Don't talk to me. Go talk to him. So they asked him, who is this fellow? Who is this fellow that told you to pick it up and to walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, this is a, a very important note here. He said, see, you are well again. See, you are well again. Then he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Then the man went away and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So let's, let's kind of unpack some of this this morning very quickly. During, during Jesus' time, there was this large crowd of disabled people that we read about who would regularly gather at this pool and would wait for an opportunity to be healed. They believed that at a certain season, at a certain moment, an angel would come down and stir the water and give it healing properties. And legend had it that the healing would happen to the very first person that was able to get into the water after the water was stirred. So let's back up a little bit. Before this massive structure became known as a place of healing, the pool simply was used for or as a reservoir that held water for ritual cleansing. That's all it was really for originally. You see, water was such an important part of early medicine in fact, it was so important to the Jewish people because in their law, which put a lot of emphasis on being clean versus unclean, it was important that they had this special water. We, we heard at the very beginning where, where the six, six big old containers that Jesus used to turn the water into wine, those were ceremonial containers. Water was a big deal. Clean versus unclean, big deal. You go through your history, look at it, water is a big deal, and it's used for cleansing, used for ritual purposes. This pool was located just outside of the walls of Jerusalem near a, a gate called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was this gate that led out into a marketplace where you could go out and purchase a lamb to use to be used. Uh, they were sold there for sacrifices that were used in the temple for ceremonial reasons. But later on, this pool, well, actually during that time, they would pull the sheep out. You'd, you'd grab yourself a little lamb. You'd take it out. You'd take it to the pool. It would be cleaned at the pool. And then it would be ushered into the temple for sacrifice. And later, that pool became known as the Pool of Bethesda. Now, Bethesda in Hebrew, this is interesting, Hebrew means house of grace or house of mercy. But in Aramaic, it actually means house of shame or house of disgrace. Interesting. So depending on how you look at it, people could walk by it and go, a bunch of crippled people in there. Now, growing up this way, I get that one. People judge this before they judge this. So I understand that. But I also can understand a house of mercy or a house of grace. Years ago in ministry, my wife and I were part of a gospel outreach. Out in, out in Cave Junction, we had a place called Bethesda Christian Center. 
Bethesda House of Mercy, where, man, we had so many hippies and all kinds of amazing people there. It was so much fun, but we just brought people in. They loved on people there and just ministered to their needs. It truly was a place of mercy and a place of love. So there are some biblical experts who believe the pool was also what was called, or still to this day, a mikvah. Now, a mikvah is a bath for Jewish wor worshipers to achieve ritual purity. To this day, in Israel, there still is mikvahs. There are still these special bath places where they go, and they take a ceremonial cleanse, usually before a marriage, a wedding, something like that, but they still use that to this day. But it was at this gate, the sheep gate, and it was at this pool, the pool of Bethesda, that Jesus heals this paralytic man. As he's entering into the city, he sees this man, and he stops, and he heals him. So for 38 years, this paralytic man had been frequenting this pool of Bethesda, hoping for what? To be healed. For 38 years, he'd been coming, been coming to the same spot, wanting and hoping to be healed. Something drew him, along with the multitude of, of others, multitudes of others who were disabled, who came to the very same place year after year. There was something that drew them there. But had healings actually happened in these mysterious waters? <clears throat> well, there's several schools of thought. And just for context, I want to I hit this for a moment because there's a bigger point to be made here in the end. Some believe, some believe that John chapter 4, ch excuse me, John chapter 5, verse 4 it says, for an angel went down to a certain season in the pool, stirred, troubled the water, stirred it, however they did it, and that whoever was the first person in the water was made whole. But some of you, if you've noticed, in your NIV translations, the NSAB, and several others, that verse 4 is not in there. How many noticed that? <clears throat> Interesting. But because of verse 4, a lot of people believe that God did pro provide these miraculous healings through the aid of angels at the Pool of Bethesda. But here's the, here's the problem. The assumption gets really complicated by the fact that not all biblical manuscripts today contain this verse. That actually makes a case for this. When I read out of my NIV, I actually put this in because it's a footnote. My NIV goes, Aramaic called Bethesda, and then when you get to... Uh, great number of people naming the paralyzed, verse 4 has, says a B, there's a footnote. And you have to go to the footnote to see the explanation of why it's there. But it's in, in a lot of new modern manuscripts today, that verse is not there. So here's, here's what happened. It, in, in John chapter 5, verse 4, it really has been purposefully omitted from a lot of modern day versions of God's word because after the 1900s, they went back and started to look at some of the older manuscripts from the 1800s and farther back and realized that it wasn't there in the original manuscripts. So somehow it had been added in there. Now, there's others that will argue that say, well, there's enough evidence to prove that it happened. But I'm just, I'm just, giving, you, I'm just giving you some of the historical context around this particular pool and the history and the reason why. And it says, I, in my notes, I put... More recent manuscripts give us a clearer picture of what the original product or the original manuscript must have looked like. But you won't find that verse in most of the original stuff. Interesting. That's why in your NIV today, it's been omitted. 
Now, in the Passion Translation, if you look at it, which really is just a commentary, it's an awesome book. I love reading it. But when you go to that, it reads it, but there's also a footnote that tells you some translations have omitted this and the reason why. So the second theory suggests something that, that seems to me very plausible, and that is that the healing, uh, the healing took place in the water of the pool because it was fed by mineral water. Now, in the Mojave Desert where I grew up as a kid, there were pools that they had built these buildings around believing that the mineral water in them had healing properties. And what we know about medicine today, there are, in some minerals, there actually is benefits, right? So it's plausible that this water could have been healing in itself just for the fact that it was a pool of mineral water. And what they would do is they would assume that the stirring came from the fact that apparently when the, the geothermal activity would be just right, it would bubble up, and as it bubbled up, it would obviously appear to be stirring the water, right? I hope I'm not messing with your heads too much here. But. So all these bubbles would come up. I don't know if you've ever been to a volcanic park, Mount Lass and other parks, and you, Old Faithful, nothing, then all of a sudden, it explodes. New minerals are coming out of the earth. So that was one of the thoughts, was as this thing erupted in some way and the bubbles came forth, that that, that was that moment that it was ejecting extra minerals into the, into the water and get in there and get now and get healed. That's another theory. But in 1888, there was a German archaeologist named, named uh, Conrad Schick, like Schick babe, uh, Shavers. He was living in Jerusalem and he was doing a lot of archaeological digging and, and finding a lot of cool things. And, and he, they believe that he found and discovered the original site of the Pool of Bethesda. And it was sometime later conclusively proven that it was not minerally fed. It wasn't this geothermal event. It was this elaborate system designed by someone in history that was this complex rainwater collection system that brought the water into the pool. It's getting quiet in here. I'm not trying to steal the thunder of the miracle. We'll get to it. <laughs> Lastly, there are some who believe that the pool was established by the Romans. Now, when you think about this, this makes sense because the Romans built maybe this pool for the express purpose of honoring their healing God. And Eusiclius, I believe that is how you pronounce it, Eusiclius, that was the name of their healing God. And historically, we know that around this pool and all around Jerusalem, there are many, many buildings that were built during the Roman occupation, including amphitheaters and various bathhouses. But this particular pool, some believe, was built outside of the walls of Jerusalem because they did not want to offend the Jewish population because they're out here, woohoo, having this bath party with their healing God. And that would have offended the Jewish culture. So... Regardless of all the history and all of this, I can tell you that the truth is the scripture really doesn't provide us with details about what the pool of Bethesda was used for, nor does it explain why so many sick people came to believe there was healing in that water. This is just fact. But there's one thing that we can know for certain. John says, that the paralytic man was healed next to the pool of Bethesda by Jesus and Jesus alone.
I so want to jump to the end, but I, I, I just, I got I to gotta build this case. So of all the people at this pool, of all the paralytic and lame and blind and, and people at the pool, why would Jesus just hone in on that one man? Why would he do that? You stole my thunder. <laughs> Jesus engaged truly in divine appointments wherever he traveled, wherever he went. Okay? He followed and he was led by the Father. He followed the Father. Wherever the Father went, the Son followed. All the way to the cross. That's a lesson for us as believers. Are we following God? Are we following God and waiting for those divine appointments, those suddenlies when God wants to use us in that moment? Out of all of the sea of demands that are in front of us, God will pick out doo -doo -doo, that one. And God says, Greg, beautiful story. Drive their own. I'm not hungry. Yes, you are hungry. I'm not. Yet. All right, pulls in. I'm always hungry, so it would be easy for me. But he pulls in there, and he, 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 it's a divine setup. You guys see that? And he's totally engaged with the divine setup. He's going where the Father's going. He's watching where the Father's leading. And he's engaged with what the Father's doing. I'm telling you, never, it was never by chance or coincidence that Jesus ended up in some particular place and do some particular miracle. It wasn't by some chance or flip a coin. No, it had nothing to do with it. Jesus always found himself in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to do the preordained work that the Father had assigned him to do. Are you that in tune with God? I mean, God's calling us to that, his people. God wants us to be so in tune that we walk around like a, like a UPS package deliverer. And, okay, who's this package go to? There is no name on this label, Father. And God goes, that man right there. Here you go. And then we become the conduit, and we bring something from God and deliver it to that man. You guys, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to just sit here and come and be spectators. We're called to be doers. So on that monumentous day, monumentous day, when, when, when that paralytic man woke up, did he awaken? Now think about this. Did he awaken in the morning to, to this place of wishing he hadn't even woken up? Did he wake up in bitterness? Did he scoot himself down to the edge of the water, hating the world, hating his life? Now hear this. And despising the waning hope that had drawn him to the pool to begin with. There are people that have been waiting so long for a healing. They actually are getting bitter. They're angry. They're upset. They're ready to take their football and go home. They're ready to throw in the towel. You could, it, we can't imagine what was going through his mind. But it had guilt and, and had shame gripped this man to the point that it kept him from believing that he could ever, ever, ever be healed. I'm telling you, as we press into the miraculous, you're going to run into this. You're going to encounter this. That there are people that are so gripped by shame and guilt, they believe that God has passed them by. In the last two or three weeks, I've had at least four people come to me and say, I really believe God gave up on me. Or I believe God has passed me by. Or I believe the Father doesn't care anymore. Because it's been so many years since they felt or moved, were moved by something of God. Another thing is, is because of John 5, 14, where Jesus 
directly confronts the man on his sin at the temple. Remember that? You need to stop sinning or something worse can happen to you. Was there something in this man's life that was so epic in terms of sin that he felt this was a sin that God would never forgive? We don't know. But I'm telling you, there were people that I've encountered in my life that have had those stories. You know, no, pastor, you don't understand. I have committed so much sin in my life, and it's so ugly. God would never want me. God can never cleanse me. God can never, it, it's just too big. Are you kidding me? But they have, to, they have to have their heart in the game. So when Jesus, when Jesus saw this man lying there and, and learning about his condition, which I think Jesus probably knew, he asked the man this unusual question, and this is one of the pivotal points in this message. He, he asked a question that begins to surgically probe the depths of the man's intentions. He said, I'm going to paraphrase. It's like, hey, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? The man had possessed, it appears, at face, so little hope that he could not answer Jesus' question directly. Instead, he, he, he replies with this statement that I wrote, revealed a deeper, more painful burden than the need for physical healing. He said, sir, I have no one to help me. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Sir, I have no one to help me. There are so many people around us that feel so alone, like no one cares and no one's there to help them. You can almost hear him begin to recite this litany of complaints about his miserable life. Let, let, let's, let's look at him really quick. John's brief account gives us kind of a quick overview of this man's character, and I'm not here to judge it. I'm just saying this is what we read. And to me, and all of this shows us how merciful God is. God's not waiting for someone who's like, you've done everything right, you're golden, okay, you're good to go, and now you get your healing. No. God took a man who was lost. God took a man who was gripped by shame and fear, and he turned his world around. So the first thing we see is he's an old guy. The life expectancy of someone in that time era was about 35 years. But it says if this man had been afflicted during childhood, like the word says, he could have been 40 or 50 years old. So that's, in that culture, that was old. He's dependent. Somebody had to get him down there. I'm pretty sure he didn't just spend the night. Somebody had to get him there and bring him home. And, 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 and it, honestly, if he couldn't take care of his personal needs, his hygiene and stuff, he probably was pretty smelly. I'm just saying, let's be real. He appears to be a complainer. He complains about how long he's been an invalid. He complains he doesn't have anyone to help him. We see that he tends to be a blamer. <laughs> when he's confronted by the Jews for carrying his bed, the pallet, on the Sabbath, what's he do? He blames the person who told him to carry it. it wasn't me. He, he told me to do it. I'm just saying... I think John's trying to show us something here. He seems to be a sinner. It was serious enough for Jesus to bring it up again in the temple because Jesus tells him, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Ouch. He seems to be ungrateful and disloyal. You know, when he learns that it was Jesus, what's he do? He goes and he tattles on him to the Jewish leaders. Hey, 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 
hey, uh, officer, that was the man. Hmm. Rather than being thankful for his healing, he kind of points the finger at the one who did it. It's kind of bizarre to me, but I think we're getting an idea of his character. He seemed to be unrepentant. There is no indication in the scripture in verses 14 through 15 that he accepted and acted on Jesus' rebuke about his sin. Rather, John tells us that, again, he reports Jesus to the authorities. But of all of those people at the pool of Bethesda that day, why did God chose to heal only this one man? Again, it goes back to we can only conclude, like Barb shared, that it was the Father's clear direction. The Father was zeroing in. I think John wants to point that out. God was showing us. He was zeroing in on a man who was not perfect, a man that had a lot of issues of the heart, a man that was struggling in life. It could have been a woman, just the same, who was struggling. God chose that one. God's not looking to heal perfect people. He wants to take imperfection and make it perfect, right? So, this question, do you really want to get well? That's kind of torqued my mind. I studied and studied and restudied. I pondered this question. Why in the world would you ask a seriously ill person if they want to get well? Yes, should be the obvious answer. I want to get well. I want to be healed. Oh, yes. Sorry, Barb. But I think Jesus wanted more than a yes or no answer. I think Jesus is probing and he's, and he's making this assessment of the man's desire and the man's faith. John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard, he taught people for generations how to question people who came to them for healing. We never make the assumption when someone comes up, I've seen this time and time again, I've gone down to Bethel and bless their hearts, I love, I love Bill Johnson, I love the ministry down there, and, 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 but I've been there many times and God just is doing something in my heart and I go up front to an altar call, and actually, you know, someone's trying to unbutton my shirt because they want to take my arm off and pray for me. I, I appreciate that, but that's not why I went up. I went up because of this. I've had several friends that are in wheelchairs, and, and they said, you know, we get leery about going to healing meetings because people make the assumption that we want to walk. Yes, we do, but this one brother was so honest, he said, the issue is, is I have a heart that's funky and foul. It was bad before. That's how I got paralyzed. I did stupid, and I got paralyzed in an accident because I was doing stupid. And, and I want my heart healed because if it's not and I get healed, I could lose that. You see what I'm saying? So we make assumptions based on what we see. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. And if anything, when, when people come to us and, and, and they're in need of, of, of prayer, I think it's very safe and very honest to say, you know, how can, I, how can I pray for you? That's really good to ask that. So don't walk by sight. As we begin to press out and, and lay hands on the sick and begin to see people get healed, don't assume what you're looking at is what needs prayer. Okay? You need to ask them, how can I pray for you? You know, I'm going to tell you something. You may not like this, but I've seen it to be true. Not every person you run into really wants to be healed. 
it, it breaks my heart, but I've run into that time and time again, or even surrender their lives to Christ. I mean, I've actually had people say, you know, if I invite Jesus into my heart, then I've got to get my act together, and I'm not ready to do that. Well, thank you for being honest. So hounds of heaven, get them. Holy Spirit, get them. And walk away, and just trust God will do what he does. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people's hearts to him. It's, we can't pound and beat on them and get a bigger Bible and thump them over the head, although I have a story about that, but some time <laughs> later. <clears throat> yeah, I got hit over the head, just saying. But sometimes people in their sickness are really in that place because what they're looking for is a lot of attention. And that sickness has become their identity. And you take that away. I've thought about this. You know, my dad always felt responsible for my arm. Always felt responsible for my arm. And, and he was like, you know, I'm just, I just know that God's going to heal you. And, and, and it's going to be for his glory. I mean, he, he wore this like a badge of just shame almost. Struggled with it. And as time went on, I thought about the healing thing in my arm. You know, I thought, man, I'd have to relearn everything. I mean, by trade, I'm a journeyman meat cutter. Huh. I'd probably cut a finger off. I, I, I've worked in the woods with chainsaws, all kinds of crazy things. I knocked a dog out one time with it. It was attacking me. <laughs> I, I'd probably get my arm bit off or something. I mean, I really have to rethink this. Do you see what I'm saying? It, But I'm telling you, the invalid in this story, when Jesus asked him, do you want to get healed? He really didn't answer the question. Rather, he explained why he hadn't gotten healed. You'll run into people like that all the time. Can I pray for you? Well, you know, I, you know, and then uh, it was like going to my grandmother's. My dad would say, do not ask grandma how she's doing. <laughs> Four hours later, and then my toe. I mean, it would start here and go all the way down. Do not ask grandma. There are people who will explain away why. They believe they're not healed. But could it be that in the presence of the Lord, this desperate man unwittingly revealed a profound truth when he said, sir, I have no one to help me. Think about that for a moment. Did his soul, something deep within the man, recognize the need for a helper? The man had no one to help him. We read that in the word. Can you imagine no one in your life? Do you know how many lonely people there are on this planet that have no one? This isolation this man must have endured, I, I believe, was probably incredibly emotionally and debilitating, uh, spiritually debilitating, as much as his own paralysis was. He was all alone. But was it this man's own fault that he was alone, that he had no one? Had he, had he driven every possible helper away from his life with his defeatist attitude, his cynicism? I, I mean, was he really critically spirited kind of person? Or maybe, maybe it was just simply his overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelming neediness that just drove people away? Maybe over the years, the people would come to help him dropped off like flies because they began to realize there's no point in wasting our time on this person anymore. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling that Jesus saw this in this man. And I think that's what John's trying to point us out. 
is we've walked by a lot of people that we've written off. God will never heal them. Boy, they're just bitter. They're angry. They're torqued. But Jesus came up and pointed him out and said, do you want to get well? But why would this man continue to drag himself to the pool of Bethesda, knowing that there was no one there to help him enter the water? Why? I wrote, perhaps his heart knew what his head had yet to discover. God had made an appointment for this man with the great physician. The great physician is moving. He's not only moving among us, he's moving in the world. And there are divine appointments that are being set up. Are you going to be part of that process? Are you going to make yourself available for that? We don't know what this invalid was thinking or feeling at that moment, but it doesn't matter. Jesus looked beyond the man's motives. He looked beyond the man's intentions. He looked beyond the man's past, and he focused on God's sovereign plan. God loved this man. And, 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 and really, when Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk, he gave the man a gift, one the man hadn't even dared to ask for. And at once the man's cured. I, I think about this for a moment. Get up. Paralytic man laying on the ground. Get up. Did his legs just shoot up? I mean, I, think about this. Did he stand up? <laughs> Look at that. I mean, 38 years of being a paraplegic, uh, uh, being a, I don't know if he's a paraquadriplegic, probably a paraplegic. Imagine that there'd be no muscles, there'd be nothing, just bones, skin on. And all of a sudden, boom, you got runner's legs. I need a runner's belly. How does that work? <laughs> you know, you just... You just can't help but look at this story. What, so at the end of the day, we're almost done here. What can we learn from this story? What can we learn from the pool of Bethesda? On the last day of the Jewish festival, now this is where I think it gets really interesting. On the last day of the Jewish festival that had brought Jesus to this place, and, 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 and Jesus had been participating in the Feast of the Tabernacles. So the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles brings Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus encounters the man at the pool. And then Jesus also participates in the festival that's going on. But one of the requirements in the Sukkot was that all the Jewish men were expected to come before the Lord in the temple. So Jesus had to have been around, and he had to have witnessed the priests filling sacred vessels at the Pool of Bethesda to use in a ceremony that had become defiled with pagan ritual. Did you catch that? He saw this. That's why in John 7, 38... Able, Jesus is simply unable to watch God's people settle for contaminated water any longer. And that's why Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them. So at this moment, here is Jesus' invitation to the masses, and it echoed the healing of the paralytic man. Wow. The man had found his helper. The man had found his helper at the pool of Bethesda. It had nothing to do with the water. It had to do with everything to do with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The helper, the source of living water standing at the pool, bringing wholeness and life to this man. So, do you want to get well? 
This word Greek well, this Greek well, this word get well is actually a Greek phrase, and it's geneste. And geneste is actually not a future tense, like I hope you get well. Did you know that? It's actually a present tense, present tense word or phrase. It's basically saying, are you convinced that you're already made whole? So Jesus is looking at this man. He's saying, are you convinced you're already made whole? Interesting. Puts a little spin on it. So, so Gneste actually indicates that something has already accomplished. It's, it's happened. It's done. But do you have the faith to believe that it's a finished product? Jesus himself, really, at the end of the day, is asking the crippled man if he was ready to abandon how he saw himself and now receive his faith for healing. Are you ready to abandon the way you see yourself? Are you ready to receive faith for healing? A lot of people that we're going to encounter are going to be in that place. Greg, could you come up? They're still here. I hope, I hope this made sense today in some way. But really, at the end of the day, yeah, at the end of the day, he is asking the crippled man, are you ready to abandon how you see yourself? If that's you, I'd like you to stand. If you need a change of heart or a change of frame of mind or a change of perspective of how you see yourself, you've been struggling with an issue of the heart for a long time, it doesn't have to be a physical healing. It can be spiritually, emotionally. There's so many different levels of healing. We're just going to worship Jesus for a moment. I believe that if you stand in faith as if you're by the pool of Bethesda, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the great physician is going to stand there because he's ready to heal your wounded heart. Amen? So come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you go down the corridor of everyone's heart in this room. Father, you know the issues in their heart. I'm not here to meddle, but you do that very well, Holy Spirit. You know, there's rooms in our hearts that we've kept shut and locked and we've kept you out of because maybe they've even become our identity. Right now, we just surrender that to you. So just begin to thank Jesus. Just begin to ask Jesus to take those burdens. Ask Jesus to change your perspective. Ask Jesus to change your heart and how you look and perceive and see things in your life. I'm telling you, the great physician is here. Those of you that are sitting, if you were to just extend out a hand or reach forward and just maybe even lay hands on someone if they're comfortable with that, just pray for them. You got the goods. 